Hello, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can contribute anything to help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And if you support at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures, including the last myth of the month, which is about the Founding Fathers. And it's one that's actually pretty closely related to what I want to talk about today, myth of the month number 17, Anglo-Saxonism. So I'm going to discuss the myth of Anglo-Saxonism, which has come up in the news and in controversies recently. You may have heard of it. And then I'll also have a message for my listeners and my patrons and a thank you to my patrons as I am approaching 100 patrons on Patreon. But first, let's talk about Anglo-Saxonism. So the myth of Anglo-Saxonism can basically be defined as the notion that the Anglo-Saxon race or ethnic group is specially suited for freedom and self-government, that it is the unique bearer of a tradition of liberty, and in some versions that it must educate and prepare other peoples for the exercise of liberty. And for a very long time, for hundreds of years, Anglo-Saxonism was basically a political and historical myth, which could be used to account for England's special status in the world. It was basically connected to early English nationalism. But later, beginning in the Victorian age, it also took on racial meanings and became bound up with racist pseudoscience. So this is part of why if people make reference today to the Anglo-Saxons or Anglo-Saxon traditions, there's a great deal of ambiguity as to exactly what you're referring to and what kind of meanings you're trying to attach to this concept of Anglo-Saxon, which already from its foundations is an ambiguous idea and category. So if we go back to history and just start by asking, who are the Anglo-Saxons? Where does that notion come from? Who are you talking about? Well, the word Anglo-Saxon was created and is still used to refer to a supposedly coherent ethnic grouping. But it really began, as most ethnic groupings did, it really began as a political label, trying to create some kind of political alliance and collectivity, and in this case specifically in early medieval Britain. So Anglo-Saxon refers loosely to the assemblage of various different tribes and polities that were of at least partially Germanic origin, whose progenitors migrated from the European continent across the sea to Great Britain after the Roman withdrawal from Britain in the 400s and 500s. So there was, at that early point in what can be called roughly the Dark Ages, although that's also a very contested term, there was a power vacuum in Britain after the end of Roman rule, and various Germanic peoples migrated and settled and in some cases conquered portions of Great Britain. And it's that loose assemblage of people that we can call Anglo-Saxon. And I've talked about Anglo-Saxons before in several lectures in Crossing the Waters, about Britain in the Dark Age, in my series about King Arthur, 
in my lecture on Anglo-Saxon England and the Vikings. So it's something I've discussed a lot. So if you've listened to those before, you, you know more or less the sort of constellation of people and groups we're talking about, and I'll put links in the description to some of those earlier lectures. But basically, it's an umbrella term for this assemblage of Germanic peoples in Britain who were actually a kind of mosaic, or maybe you could say melting pot even, of different tribes and ethnic groups, Angles, Saxons, as well as Jutes, Frisians, and others, who settled in Britain, sometimes fought one another, sometimes fought against the previous inhabitants of Britain, the the so-called Britons or Celtic peoples, and sometimes also absorbed these local pre-existing peoples in the island who were called Britons or Welsh or Welshmen. And this assemblage of people created a shared language, which is called Anglo-Saxon, and which became the sort of main common language for communication around most of Britain. This Anglo-Saxon language is the ancestor of English that I'm speaking right now, although it sounds very different and is not really comprehensible to modern English speakers. And Anglo-Saxon, we know a certain amount about it because it also became a literary language. There is poetry and epics, historical chronicles like Bede's Chronicle and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle written in this language. But it really is something of a misnomer. Linguists today would tend to say it's a bit of a misnomer to call that language Anglo-Saxon, even though it was the common language of Angles and Saxons or this umbrella group Anglo-Saxons. But really, it seems it's derived more from Frisian, which is a language spoken on the upper coast of the Netherlands and that was brought over by Frisian migrants into Britain. And still today, if you hear Frisian, it, it is the most closely related language to English in existence. So in all of these ways, this is a very you know ambiguous and you could say historically questionable term. You know, how coherent were these different Germanic groups? Why are they associated together in this kind of bucket? Is it really just a way of distinguishing migrants from local native people? And where did their language come from? What do they really have in common? So this raises the question of why do we call them Anglo-Saxon? Why is that the common accepted term? And this term, this name and category, Anglo-Saxon, was actually created almost at the time. It was created in the ninth century because of a specific political situation at that time. And that situation came about not because the Germanic invaders somehow naturally united together against the Welsh or Britons. That is not what happened. They set up a whole variety, a kind of kaleidoscope of different kingdoms all around the island. Rather, what made them come together and forge a sort of collective identity was their wars against the Vikings. So several hundred years after these so-called Anglo-Saxons had invaded and settled in Britain, they were then followed by another Germanic invading group, and that was Norse Vikings from Scandinavia, particularly from Denmark. So the Anglo-Saxons often referred to them simply as Danes. And as the Danes invaded and conquered and pressed westward through the island, 
basically the remaining Anglo-Saxon polities had to somehow unite together. And they mainly rallied around the one strongest Anglo-Saxon kingdom still standing in the West, which was called Wessex. And particularly under the leadership of Alfred, or Alfred the Great, as he's called, they were able to rally their defenses and begin to push back and press the Danes back eastward and retake territory from them. So Wessex for a long time was in the lead of this sort of native Anglo-Saxon or older migrant Anglo-Saxon resistance against the Vikings. And as they took territory back from the Danes, they annexed areas that had different ethnic and ancestral backgrounds from Wessex. So Wessex was more specifically a Saxon kingdom. So before the Viking invasion, you had this, as I said, a mosaic of kingdoms around what's now England that spoke different dialects, that had different ancestries, different laws and customs, different royal houses. And those in the south tended to identify themselves as Saxons, whereas further north in areas that became known as East Anglia, Northumbria, they were Angles. And meanwhile, there were other areas that were dominated by Jutes or maybe even other groups we don't even know about. But Wessex was a Saxon kingdom. It means Western Saxons. And as they pressed eastward and took over areas that had previously been part of East Anglia and that were inhabited by so-called Angles, they had to forge some kind of unity. And it wasn't always an easy process. There was conflict and resistance. But in order to help create a united front against the Danes, they sort of merged Angles and Saxons together into this one new term, Anglo-Saxon. And from that point onward, the kings of Wessex were traditionally called, quote, Rex Anglo-Saxonum, king of Anglo-Saxons. So this was a conscious and intentional political move to try to form a unified identity in this ongoing campaign against the Vikings, which eventually succeeded after more than 200 years of struggle. So the term was first invented probably under Alfred the Great. It continued to be used, at least in formal settings, later in the 900s. We don't know so much what the common people on the ground said, whether they talked about themselves as Anglo-Saxons, because we don't have any of their, like, political commentaries. We only have proclamations, oaths, legal decrees, things like this. And in that formal setting, at least, people were calling themselves Anglo-Saxon. But later in the 900s, as this campaign against the Vikings achieved greater success, and you saw rulers actually able to forge a really extensive and centralized kingdom, they started to use even more grandiose titles. And for example, King Edgar at his lavish coronation ceremony proclaimed himself Emperor of Britain. So he's on the one hand drawing on this sort of Roman legacy of imperium, and also he's claiming to rule the whole island of Britain, even what's now Scotland and Wales and so on. And this was really getting ahead of himself. He was sort of out over his skis. But even as these ambitions had to be trimmed back a bit, it became possible for rulers in the later 10th century and the 11th century to claim control 
over a large area of Britain, basically all around where Anglo-Saxon was the main shared language. And they claimed this as a realm, which they called Anglia, or later in, in English, Engeland, right, the land of Angles. So the Saxon part sort of got dropped out. It just wasn't important or relevant anymore. And it, increasingly, it seems that this effort to unite in English-speaking realm really succeeded. And in the 1000s, more and more people did refer to themselves as English. And these smaller ethnic distinctions didn't really matter as much. So you can see where Anglo-Saxon it's a, as a concept, it's a bridge in more than one way. It's a connection between Angles and Saxons, and also it sort of paved the way towards a more effectively consolidated English identity, which then superseded it, and Anglo-Saxons sort of faded into the background. So it's a term that was invented as a broad grouping, basically in contrast with other competing groups. On the one hand, the Romano-Britons, these previously existing Roman and Celtic peoples who were in the island before the Germanic invasions, and then even more so against the Vikings and the Danes, this later wave of Norse invaders. You could say, in a way, it's a victim of its own success. Once a consolidated realm was created, this simple notion of English and England really took over, and Anglo-Saxon faded as a kind of artifact of history. And this concept of Anglo-Saxon was always, from its beginning, makeshift and ad hoc, and it was always a sort of hodgepodge, cobbled-together category. And that should be clear right from the name. It's got a hyphen right there in the name. It's an attempt at sort of bricolage to fit together different pieces into some coherent whole. The first challenge that this English identity then weathered was the Norman invasion of 1066, when William the Conqueror, who had been the Duke of Normandy, was able to claim the English throne and he replaced a certain portion of the English aristocracy and nobility with his Norman allies. So for the first time, you now had this clear division in terms of language and customs between two different groups within England, and the ruling class was in large part Norman. And this led to a small revival of the term, where sometimes Anglo-Saxon was used to specifically designate people whose families and ancestries had been in England prior to this Norman takeover. So it reemerges a bit as an ethnic or ancestral term, but it was not a very important distinction in law or in custom. There was, as I said, some upper-class displacement, but that story has often been exaggerated. Some members of the old aristocracy were dispossessed and stripped of their titles and their lands, which were then transferred over to Normans in order to reward William's supporters, his political supporters, in the succession struggle, which was a normal practice in much of medieval Europe. And some of those who were rewarded and given lands and estates in this process were also Anglo-Saxons. It's not as if there was a total mass ethnic displacement. And the Normans who came in were soon pretty easily absorbed into England. 
they changed the language. So what had been Old English or Anglo-Saxon evolved into what we now call Middle English, which has a lot of French words and French influence. And Norman faded out and eventually was only used ceremonially, like in royal proclamations. And the ancestral groups, Normans and Anglo-Saxons and whoever else, intermarried and intermixed, and these Normans were pretty easily subsumed into the English population. So once again, Anglo-Saxon was not really a significant term in terms of society or law. There was no apartheid system. There were no legal distinctions between Normans and Anglo-Saxons. And what really brought the category of Anglo-Saxon back into the conversation and began the, the seeds of the Anglo-Saxonist myth was much later, really, in the Protestant Reformation. So in the late Middle Ages, there was something of a notion of England as being especially free among European countries, English subjects having a lot of rights and entitlements, which distinguished them, say, from France. Some of these were contained in statements of rights like the Magna Carta. But at the time, the Magna Carta didn't have all that much importance. It was largely just codifying the demands of barons as against the king. It wasn't seen as a big life-changing event. There were regular meetings of the parliament as it became more and more of an entrenched institution. And so there was some sense of difference between England and the countries on the continent. But what really caused a rupture and brought this contrast to the forefront was the Protestant Reformation. And once England embraced Protestantism, separated from the Church of Rome, a lot of these English reformers connected the Protestant cause to a sense of English pride in their liberty. And especially under Queen Elizabeth, she put herself forward as not only a symbol and embodiment of the nation, but also as the leader and protector of Protestantism and this image was vindicated then by the defeat of the Spanish Armada. So a lot of fear and contempt and animosity towards Catholic Europe was woven in then with both English pride and Protestantism. And Catholic Europe was cast and portrayed as corrupt and greedy with a repressive clergy, the people as being indolent and corrupted, and it was portrayed as a, a repressive civilization, tyrannical, with the church-dominating politics, in contrast to England, where you had a church with much more modest legal and political claims that was subordinate to the civil authority. And a lot of these reformers looked back, as other Protestant reformers did, they looked back to the primitive church of antiquity or the early Middle Ages. And for England, that especially meant looking back to the supposed half-legendary early Anglo-Saxon missionary church, which they presented as more pure, less corrupted, in contrast to the Catholic church. So this idea of a sort of good, pure, virtuous, and more free, uncorrupted Anglo-Saxon past starts really in the Elizabethan period, 
for a while, it sort of fades out, but then comes back very dramatically again after 1700. And at that point, it becomes politicized. Really, the notion of England as politically distinct, as more free, as possessing liberty, this takes on a whole new urgency in the 1700s when the classical Republican tradition comes more and more into the conversation. And you have this increasingly wealthy, dynamic commercial society, new classes arising in the towns and cities, and they want a political voice. And they see models and inspirations in the ancient political Republican tradition and the writers like Cicero and Polybius, as well as in the Italian Renaissance with Machiavelli and writers like that. And so in the 1700s, there's this new tension and kind of conflict between, on the one hand, embracing English traditions and laws, including monarchism and the feudal traditions, the Protestant church, and on the other hand, this classical republicanism, which in their eyes is secular and comes from the continent. And there's a push and pull, especially in the writings and the thinkings of Whigs, this new reformist, anti-royalist party. And one way to reconcile this conflict between English patriotism and classical republicanism was to look through English customs and laws and the sort of accumulation of common law and the English constitution and sort through and distinguish which of these laws and customs are supposedly Anglo-Saxon and hence go are connected to this kind of ancient liberty, and which ones are Norman and hence foreign. And so it's really the Whigs in the 1700s as part of their creation of Whig history and this myth of continual progress towards greater and greater liberty. It's these Whigs who embrace the Anglo-Saxons as exemplifying the tradition of liberty, which is then the main thread and theme of English history. And they go back and even draw on ancient descriptions like Tacitus's treatise about the Germans, where he portrays them as relatively free and equal, defensive of their rights in a sort of quasi-democratic tribal society. The Whigs argue that these free institutions like councils, parliaments, trial by jury, they argue that these things are essentially Germanic, that they were brought over by the Anglo-Saxon migrants into Britain and flourished in early England, but then they were supposedly crushed by the Norman yoke. And this is the sort of dramatic phrase you see a lot in Whig history, the, the imposition of foreign tyrannical rule by the Normans. And the major example of this sort of Whig history is Catherine Macaulay's History of England, which she published in 1763. And her history casts the constitutional struggles that had been going on in England, like the Civil War in the 1640s and the Glorious Revolution in 1688. She casts these as fights between essentially Anglo-Saxon liberty and Norman tyranny. And this was very rhetorically useful because it aligned the monarchists within England, like the 
the Royalist Cavaliers who supported the crown in the Civil War, the Tories, it cast them as aligned with France, right? because they're, they're representing the Norman side. They're associated with France, with the continent, and hence, by extension, with Catholicism. And all of these things are increasingly despised and demonized in the eyes of Whigs. And this sort of contempt or fear of the continent and Catholicism only really increased as people in Britain became more wealthy and were able to travel abroad. And there's a great deal of literature about Britons going to France and Italy, Germany, Spain, to see the Roman ruins, to see the great cathedrals, but then coming back with just a disgust for what they see as a backwards, corrupt, rundown society with kind of superstitious, ignorant people in contrast to much more modern and efficient and enlightened England. So this new Whig Anglo-Saxon myth helped to justify Britain's rise to world power in the 1700s. And it claimed that the British, because of this Anglo-Saxon heritage, were better suited than other Europeans to govern themselves and also to educate and civilize the world. They were seen as bearers of traditions that equip otherwise primitive people for self-government. So sometimes they would even speak specifically about how primitive and crude the lifestyle was of these Anglo-Saxons, and yet they had this sort of essential strength and pride in their self-government. And they argued that other people could evolve along similar lines. They could be educated, Christianized, civilized to the level of Britain, and hence prepared then to be self-governing nations like Britain. And in this way, this growing British empire could be cast as a kind of extended tutelage where other peoples, whether they were colonists, you know, primitive colonials or natives, could go through a sort of extended tutelage and preparation for eventual independence, as opposed to being subjected to simple superstitious backwards tyranny like the other European empires, like the French and the Spanish. So obviously, it all fits together into a very self-flattering picture for Britons in the 1700s. And this mythology was also taken up to a great degree in America. And many British Whigs, including Catherine Macaulay herself, sympathized with the Americans when they rebelled against acts like the Stamp Act and declared, you know, taxation without representation is tyranny, demanding a voice in their own government. And many American revolutionaries themselves also embraced the myth and saw America as sort of the place where this Anglo-Saxon history would be fully realized. An example of that is Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was an Anglo-Saxonist. And when he was part of the discussion about creating a great seal for the United States, you know, something like, it's sort of like a flag, you know, if you're, if you're going to be a country with sovereignty, you have to have a seal. And Jefferson wanted the seal to depict Hengist and Horsa, which are the legendary Anglo-Saxon brothers who supposedly led the first migration and invasion of Anglo-Saxons into Britain. And you can see how an American like Jefferson could see 
Hengist and Horsa and their sort of Anglo-Saxon fleet as forebears, people who had crossed the sea, colonized a new land, and supposedly brought this Anglo-Saxon liberty with them. So this sort of Whig Anglo-Saxonism had a lot of appeal on both sides of the ocean. As for evaluating it against history, there is some limited basis for it. You can see where there are some points you can marshal in support of this mythology. There are common traditions of institutions like trial by jury that are practiced and have been practiced from time immemorial in Scandinavia and in these Germanic northern parts of Europe. And it's plausible that those came over with the Anglo-Saxon migration into Britain. There was considerable decentralization and local self-rule in Anglo-Saxon England. A lot of government took place in the small local councils of groups or wards called hundreds. And the monarchy in Anglo-Saxon England did have very limited powers, which we can see in certain customary statements and acts like the so-called coronation oaths, where new kings, when they were crowned, would make pledges to respect various customs and the rights of subjects. So, you know, there, there is some basis for this idea that, that Anglo-Saxon society had a great deal of respect for subjects' ability to govern themselves or take part in government. But at the same time, these institutions have very close parallels in places all over Europe, including, for one thing, Greece and Rome, where we have a lot more records, but also in other parts of medieval Europe, things like jury trials. There were sort of jury trials with large randomly selected juries in ancient Greece, and in different ways, juries were employed in, in various parts of Europe. Also, local village autonomy, you know, the, the so-called hundreds in early England are not unlike the small local villages that could form their own councils and even set their own laws and ordinances all around medieval Europe, and also limited monarchy. It was normal in medieval kingdoms for powers to be divided between the crown, the nobility, the church, and all kinds of various regional institutions, parlements in France, and so on. So that kind of limited and divided government was not unique to the Anglo-Saxons. And furthermore, all these things I mentioned, like trial by jury, they were only definitely codified into law in England after the Norman takeover. So it may be that they have a lot of their roots in the Anglo-Saxon age, but we really don't know because they're not clearly written down until the Norman age. And the big example of that, as I mentioned, is the Magna Carta, which all kinds of Whigs and Anglo-Saxonists like to point to as the great embodiment of this ideal of the free subject and the limited powers of government. Well, that was only signed in 1215, so more than a century after the Norman conquest. And King John, who signed the Magna Carta, was forced to sign it by an alliance of nobles who are commonly just called the barons. And the war that they were engaged in is sometimes just called the Barons' War. And so you could say, well, this is a case of Anglo-Saxon liberty asserting itself against Norman oppression, 
but most of those nobles were also of Norman extraction. It was largely an intra-Norman affair. And in fact, historians today argue that really the Normans, once they took over, they didn't really change the laws or practices of government in England very much at all. They basically just took over a a privileged position in the existing order, but didn't really upset that order that much. They didn't want to be seen as foreign. They wanted to be integrated into the kingdom as it was. And also there probably wasn't very much difference to begin with. The laws and customs in Normandy in the High Middle Ages were not that different from England. And The reason why William the Conqueror was able to make a claim for the throne at all was that he was closely related to the English king, Edward the Confessor. So they were all very related and intertwined. And basically, this version of Whig history, this notion that there was a pure Anglo-Saxon liberty that was then corrupted or disrupted by the Norman yoke, That was largely debunked by about 1870. Once sort of rigorous, methodical, archival history comes into its own, beginning in Germany and then spreading around Europe in the 1860s, that sort of crude Whig mythology is really torn apart. And no serious historians see it that way anymore. So you might think that at that point, Anglo-Saxonism as a myth would simply fade out and would have to be replaced by something else. But more what happened is that while that sort of politicized Anglo-Saxonism was fading, a new version, a racialized version of Anglo-Saxonism came to the fore. And this new kind of racial Anglo-Saxonism was not only British, but also a kind of Britano-German creation that took shape in this sort of trans-European, largely British and German, reformist, nationalist, racist, and pseudoscientific milieu. And this new racialization of the category of Anglo-Saxon, it was spurred on, for one thing, on on one hand, by the unification and rapid rise to power of Germany. So Germany was only finally unified after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 under the leadership of Bismarck. And this was a tremendous challenge to Britain's sense of itself and its place in the world because Britain had always depended on its role as a player in the European balance of power along with other powers like France, Austria, Prussia, Russia, while at the same time they got to benefit from this big maritime overseas empire. But with the unification of Germany, they suddenly now vaulted to this position of great power, of a tremendous industrial base, a highly modern large military, where they threatened to disrupt that balance of power and possibly even challenge Britain as an imperial, an overseas imperial power. So Britons had to figure out how to respond to this, and there were various different ways. You know, it caused a lot of anxiety. But some Britons responded by claiming a certain commonality with Germany and seeking a sort of friendly alignment with the new German Reich on the basis of this common heritage. And 
that this sort of political Anglo-Saxonism I was talking about was basically outmoded, ironically, partly because of the new German style of scholarship. But there was an advantage then in adopting a racial Anglo-Saxonism, the idea that the Anglo-Saxons were fundamentally a biological ancestral group and that the English could claim the sort of special status and special powers of this Anglo-Saxon racial group, which then connected them to Germany because the Anglo-Saxons were Germanic and most of them, it seems, came from basically the northern edge of what's today Germany, although their origins are very murky. So this racial Anglo-Saxonism could explain two things at once. On the one hand, it could explain Britain's rise to imperial primacy, which it really had achieved by 1870, and also it could explain this new dramatic German challenge to their position. And hence, it had a great appeal to many parties in Britain, especially after about 1880, when both Britain and Germany throw themselves into the so-called scramble for Africa. So you have this intense competition and race between European powers, including particularly Britain, France, and Germany, to just grab territory and resources in Africa. And one way to kind of avoid conflict and try to smooth over this very dangerous process was to kind of emphasize commonalities and say, well, we're all European, or we're all white, or we're all Christian, and hence we all should cooperate with one another in this imperial project, or at least uh, maintain harmony. And that was particularly crucial for Britain and Germany, when you know Britain is the great established imperial power and Germany is the new upstart. So some scholars in the 1880s and 1890s really start to put aside or at least dramatically revise the old Whig narrative. So they put aside the old notion of a fundamental opposition between Britain and the continent, and instead they emphasize the links and the supposed common heritage between Britain and specifically Germany because of these Anglo-Saxon roots that go back to Germany or the Germanic peoples. And so this political realignment also converges then with another trend that had started in the 1700s and continued through the 1800s. And this was a shift in thinking about humanity and seeing humankind more as animals. So just as some scholars were kind of putting aside the old sense of opposition and distinction between Britain and Germany, likewise, many people in the sort of scientific and pseudoscientific fields were putting aside the old sense of opposition between humans and animals. And they were looking at human beings as organisms that could be bred and manipulated and improved like animals. And there was an increasing interest in heredity, both in Britain and in Germany. And a lot of this stems, in Britain at least, it stemmed a lot from the enormous booming wool industry and the obsession with breeding and manipulating sheep, who are, you know, among the most easily manipulated animals that there are. But as part of this, the sort of growing lucrative industrial farming sector 
was seeking out ways to breed and sort out better or hardier stock and how to sort of weed out the the weaker or less productive sheep and create kind of super sheep. And increasingly in the 1800s, people then applied that thinking to people and asked, well, how can we sort of sort out stronger and weaker people? How can we breed? Uh, you know, this was the roots of eugenics. The, the animal breeding sector produced the early forerunners to Darwin's theory of evolution. And this came from sheep and also dog breeding practices. And sometimes this carried over to how people talked about humans and even talked about themselves. So in this context, this idea of Anglo-Saxon was useful again, and it took shape then as a racial and biological category, which was supposedly conditioned in some way, conditioned by the environment or by history to be stronger and hardier, like, like the good sheep. And an interesting little example of this can be seen in a speech by the conservative British politician Charles Addersley, who reportedly, while kind of, you know, campaigning and drumming up support in the countryside, which was the traditional base of the Tories, he said to a group of farmers, quote, the Anglo-Saxon race are the best breed in the world. The absence of a too enervating climate, too unclouded skies, and too luxurious nature has rendered us superior to all the world. So you can see right here off the bat, he's talking to farmers, and he uses the language of farmers. We are the best breed, like your better dogs or your better sheep. And then he uses this funny sort of partially climate deterministic biology to say, well, we are somehow conditioned to be better or are just naturally have better inborn qualities. And he's clearly drawing a contrast here again with the continent, you know, a too enervating climate, too unclouded skies. This is drawing on the idea that the Mediterranean and Southern European peoples are sort of lazier or weaker because they have this more pleasant, easy climate, whereas the British are tougher because they have to deal with the, <laughs> the the delightful British climate. Somehow this also translates then into a better nature. You know, the, the continental Europeans have, quote, too luxurious nature, right? They're, they're too lazy, they're too greedy, they're too indulgent, whereas the British, by contrast, are tough and hardworking. And this then justifies why they are an industrial people and an imperial people. And furthermore, as the British Empire expands and more and more people from Britain are out working in the empire as sailors or merchants or just, you know, laborers on railways, they also then take this sense of Anglo-Saxon superiority and apply it to these other colonized peoples in Asia or Africa. And so Anglo-Saxonism can be easily folded into, at least in the right contexts, it can be folded into a broader sense of white or European supremacy. And this kind of uh, racial biological Anglo-Saxonism then gets a big boost after the theories of Darwin and Huxley also gain 
attraction, the theory of evolution by natural selection. It's a way to sort of bring together this notion of environmental influences and just sort of inborn uh, fitter fitness. And so there's an explosion of interest in the ancestry and origins of peoples as a way of sort of sorting out who might be higher or lower on the chain of evolution. This, of course, is not what Darwin himself said. You know, he did not try to claim that uh, being more fit meant you were somehow higher or, or superior, but that is the way social Darwinists applied the idea. And in doing this, English, the category of English was understood to be too fuzzy. It was too biologically mixed and ambiguous. You know, are, well, are your ancestors Norman, or are they Britonic, or are they Jutes? You know, it was too uh, vague and grab bag a category to work for this kind of pseudoscience. And so Anglo-Saxon was mobilized as a supposedly more racially precise idea that was more specifically linked to the Germanic group. And so pseudoscientific racism and Anglo-Saxonism really reached their height basically in the early 1900s, right at the peak of the British Empire. And it was caught up with eugenics and with a fear of the degeneration of races. So this is another kind of odd idea that a lot of social Darwinists and racial pseudoscientists took up, the notion that even if a certain racial group was superior or more fit, it could degenerate and fall on the scale if it intermixed with others. And so this idea of, of a pure stock, of a pure breed, really uh, infused Anglo-Saxonism right at this kind of imperial heyday in the early 1900s. And the justification for the British Empire changed and evolved. Instead of being civilizational and the idea that the empire is good if it Christianizes people or educates or prepares people to be more civilized and leads them towards independence, instead many people shifted over to a racial and biological justification which claimed that the natives were just inherently inferior, lower on a biological scale. They could never reach a British level of civilization and hence just perpetual rule by Britain was justified. And one promoter, a major influential promoter of this kind of racial Anglo-Saxonism, I don't know exactly which claims or arguments he subscribed to or what his precise version of, of Anglo-Saxonism was, but certainly a big promoter of this overall mythology was Cecil Rhodes, who was an industrialist and mining magnate who made a lot of his fortune from colonial mining in Britain's colonies in southern Africa. So he was someone who spurred on and benefited from the British takeover of much of southern Africa. And he was an Anglo-Saxonist. He believed in this kind of ideology of empire. And he created the so-called Rhodes Scholarship in 1902. So this is a scholarship that still exists, that pays for talented young people from around the world to go study for two years at Oxford, you know, the oldest and arguably most prestigious British university. 
But when the Rhodes Scholarship was first created, its purpose was to foster unity, especially unity among the elites of English-speaking countries, and hence to foster a sense of Anglo-Saxon racial unity among the leadership classes. So at that time, when the scholarship was started, eligibility for it was for young men from Britain, the British Commonwealth countries like Canada and Australia, the U.S., and Germany. So he connected Germany then as part of this sort of broader Anglo-Saxon sphere. And that seems to have been a common idea at that time, that this Anglo-Saxonism could ensure a sort of ethno-racial unity and alliance between Britain and Germany. Now, of course, it should be obvious that all kinds of things are wrong with this kind of biological essentialism, right? For, for one thing, heredity does not have the kind of power that these racial pseudoscientists like to attribute to it. You know, genetic variations among populations are very small, and there's very little evidence that they have that much effect on a person's uh, capabilities, right? There are, there are individual genetic factors in things like height or mathematical ability or artistic ability, but they don't vary that much on the population level. But even putting that aside, the English population, as I said, is really heterogeneous. And in terms of their ancestry, they're a very complicated mix of pre-Indo-European populations that were there even before the Britons, Celtic or possibly sort of hodgepodge Indo-European groups that spoke Celtic languages like the Britons or the Welsh, Romans, Germanic migrants, including the so-called Anglo-Saxons and the Frisians and others, Norse, there was a big infusion of Norse ancestry from the Viking invasions, Norman, French Huguenot, etc., etc. So the English population has really always been a hodgepodge group. And today, when we look at actual genetics, which we can do that and couldn't obviously knew nothing about 100 years ago, we can actually take people's genomes and compare them against each other and see who is related to whom, who shares common uh, genetic traits. And the English population seems to be more Britonic than Anglo-Saxon. So they're, they're more closely related, by and large, to the population of Ireland, which is traditionally regarded as a Celtic country, more than they are to Germany or Denmark. So this idea of the, the English being sort of essentially or biologically Anglo-Saxon just does not hold up. And from always from the beginning, this decision, this strategy to identify the Anglo-Saxons as the supposed root of England or the real English people was always political. There are political reasons to cast it that way. So this mythology, this new biological Anglo-Saxonism, would break down pretty quickly when the political situation shifted. So it wasn't the discovery of new or better biological information that ultimately put this racial Anglo-Saxonism out of the forefront that relegated it. It was changing politics. And so this scheme of Anglo-Saxonism was really challenged and disrupted, obviously enough, by World War I. This deadly, uh, destructive existential struggle between 
the Allies and the Central Powers, particularly Britain and Germany. And because of this disruption, Anglo-Saxonism had to be radically reformulated and redeployed in a different way that no longer tried to cast Britain and Germany as somehow essentially aligned. And this recasting of Anglo-Saxonism mainly happened in America. So America really becomes the new home of a new and ethnicized Anglo-Saxonism. So as I said, early on it was politicized, then it was racialized, and then in the 20th century, especially in America, it was ethnicized. So in the 1910s and 20s, during and after the First World War, Americans sort of returned Anglo-Saxonism to a narrower meaning. And more and more people used Anglo-Saxon, not in this sort of broad racial sense of all these different Germanic peoples, but rather meaning more just people of English ancestry or English stock, in contrast to ethnics, right? (laughs) As Americans like to say, ethnics, people who aren't Anglo-Saxon, which can usually mean Irish, Germans, Italians, East Asians like Chinese and others. And so in America, it Anglo-Saxon takes on a combination of narrower, more specific ethnic connotations and also class connotations. And this happens because America has much greater immigration than Britain does. And so a lot of people's status in society and their sort of class standing depends on whether they come from immigrant stock or from pre-revolutionary colonial families. And Anglo-Saxon can be used as kind of a byword for people with that colonial, largely English background. And the immigrants in America As I mentioned, a lot of them are Irish or Italian. They come from various parts of Europe, also Asia. And a lot of them are Germans. So in America, Germans are part of the political and social landscape in a way that we really don't talk about and think about today. And in large part, a lot of the German heritage in America, the large areas that spoke German, where there's German food and customs, we've sort of uh, thrown that out into the memory hole largely because of World War I and World War II, when there, was, there were waves of anti-German sentiment. So Germans were part of the immigrant world in America, and the traditional existing upper classes and middle classes looked down on these Germans, saw them as foreign uh, and suspect and often dangerous. A lot of them are Roman Catholic, which sort of marks them as as foreign and possibly subversive in many people's eyes. They have different customs, different languages. And also in the later 1800s and early 1900s, there's a period of great labor militancy. And a lot of German immigrants were radical. Many were anarchist in particular. Some were Marxist or socialist of various stripes. And a lot of the leading agitators in places like Chicago were German radicals. So in America, Anglo-Saxonism completely drops this idea that Germans somehow fit in together as part of this Anglo-Saxon race or Anglo-Saxon family. And rather, the traditional sort of genteel upper classes in America, especially in the Northeast, they take up this new Anglo-Saxonism 
that emphasizes America's connection to Britain, who are our allies in the First World War, and that excludes Germans. And so this Anglo-Saxonism is embraced at the old universities, which are increasingly prestigious, places like Harvard and Yale. It's used as an argument for studying English history and especially English literature. So this is when you see things like Chaucer and Shakespeare really being integrated into the curriculum. And it serves as a way of drawing distinctions between the kind of longer established local elites of America and immigrants, especially Jews. So Jews by this time, many of them are native-born in America, they're native English speakers, they do very well academically, many of them are qualified to join these elite institutions, but people need a way to argue, to close the door and argue that they don't really count, even if they're sort of book smart, they don't have our good old Anglo-Saxon virtues. So it's used as a justification for maintaining the special closed status of the Northeastern elite and their institutions like the colleges. It's also used as a justification for American empire, right? So America becomes an imperial power After the Spanish-American War, they take over the Philippines and suppress an independence rebellion in the Philippines. And this Anglo-Saxonism can be used to counter an older national exceptionalist idea, which had been prevalent in most of the 19th century, the notion that the U.S. was unlike Europe and that it was non-imperial and hence different from Britain. But with the 20th century, you know, people cook up a new uh, rationale for why it's good for the U.S. to be an imperial country like Britain and to go out there into the world uh, alongside Britain and try to shut out and outcompete the Germans who are more dangerous. And it then also allows for and justifies an increasing mimicry and borrowing of imperial practices from Britain. So on the one hand, you have this this older national exceptionalism that we don't do the sort of things Britons do. And then against it, you have this rising Anglo-Saxonism, which holds that the U.S. should be like Britain. And, and along with that, there's also a new historiography, a sort of imperial school of historiography, which argues that, you know, the, the, the revolution was just kind of a misunderstanding and really Britain and America have so much in common and should be aligned together. And with this Anglo-Saxonism already kind of starting to circulate among the elites, World War I was really seized upon then as an opportunity to celebrate this supposed Anglo-Saxon heritage. Uh, you know, the idea we, we must make the world safe for democracy, right? We are also protectors of this tradition of liberty as against the continent and particularly Germany, right? So there's a contrast with the Germans. There's a great fear. Uh, the American media and propaganda and the American government drum up fear of the Kaiser, this sort of uniquely dangerous, repressive, kind of primitive tyrant. If you look at the the propaganda from during the war in America, they referred to Germans as the Hun or the Huns, you know, this sort of impersonal, animalistic mass. They're often depicted as kind of like King Kong, sort of these big, just uh, furry, animalistic, bestial, gorilla monsters who are coming to steal 
Anglo-Saxon women, basically. And so this is a new sort of racialized Anglo-Saxonism that is conveniently aligned against these Germans who are cast as somehow Eastern, right? Not only not Anglo-Saxon, but not even European or not human, ultimately. And after the war, there is a continuing tremendous fear of foreigners, a campaign to combat infiltration and subversion of America by dangerous foreign elements, which are on the one hand politically radical and also racially or ethnically degenerate. So there's a great Red Scare in the 1920s, which is anti-Marxist. It's spurred on by Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution, as well as kind of racial eugenics. And all of these arguments are then used to justify the immigration restrictions in the 1920s. So there had already been previously immigration restrictions barring Chinese immigrants, but the 1920s is the first time that the U.S. starts to limit immigration from Europe. And it's aimed at reducing the number of Jews, Italians, Poles, and other Eastern and Southern Europeans. And these immigration restrictions were promoted in large part by genteel, upper-class Anglo-Saxonists, especially in the Northeast. A lot of the same people are also promoters at the same time of the Founding Fathers myth, which I talked about in my, my last Myth of the Month for patrons that people like Warren G. Harding introduced this concept of the Founding Fathers as a way of fostering the notion that Americans all belong to one family and come from one stock, right? It's a familial metaphor, and hence the people who trace their ancestry back to the Revolution or the colonial era are kind of born into this American ethnic family in a way that the immigrants are not, or at least that is a way you could interpret it and apply it in an Anglo-Saxonist fashion. So thus far, if we look at these different stages and evolution of the Anglo-Saxonist myth, right, from Whig history in the 1700s to racial Anglo-Saxonism in the Victorian age to this American kind of ethnic Anglo-Saxonism, there are certain continuities, right? There's a continuing association of the Anglo-Saxon stock with hardiness, with strength of character that is necessary for freedom and liberty. And there is a continuing contrast between that Anglo-Saxon stock and others who represent tyranny and the sort of weakness of character that allows for tyranny to happen. And those others against whom the Anglo-Saxons cast themselves are the Normans, various continental Europeans, Roman Catholics, Asians, Africans, and immigrants, especially Jews. So this is where you can see this sort of ethno-racial Anglo-Saxonism really reaching a peak in the 1920s, continuing to be strong through the 30s, but then being disrupted again in a different way by World War II. So with World War II, you again have the U.S. and Britain facing off against Germany. So in, in a lot of ways, it's a repeat of the First World War. But a difference is that the same sort of racial and eugenic thinking that underpinned the Anglo-Saxon myth was then taken to an even greater height, of course, by the Nazis in Germany. 
And so the struggle against the Nazis and the victory against the Nazis resulted in a massive discrediting of eugenics and race science. Not to say that these completely went away. They did persist in different places in different forms. But they were largely, again, relegated out of acceptable mainstream political discourse. And they were seen increasingly as German and not American. There was a wide rejection of anti-Semitism, at least the racial biological form of anti-Semitism that had been so embraced by the Nazis, and also a weakening of the ideological underpinnings of Jim Crow. Right? If, if practices like ghettoization and concentration camps and uh, you know, the Nuremberg laws, if these things were so such anathema to American values, then that really undermined the philosophy of Jim Crow and helped then to pave the way for the civil rights movement starting in the 50s. And so in all of these ways, racial Anglo-Saxonism became outmoded or at least very politically uncouth after World War II. And this idea of a a superior Anglo-Saxon race or ethnic group uh, had to shift to a very different terrain. And once again, the concept of Anglo-Saxon still didn't go away. It has this remarkable staying power, but it took on a new purpose and a new meaning, what you could call a kind of cultural class or class cultural meaning. And so the concept of Anglo-Saxon was taken up after World War II by a new generation of scholars of ethnic backgrounds. So writers like Oscar Handlin, Irving Howe, Nathan Glazer, who sometimes were collectively called the New York intellectuals. They came from largely immigrant backgrounds, especially Jewish. The, The largest number of them were Jewish. And some of them tried to rewrite American history and this sort of picture of American society in a way that put immigrants at the center. And this is where our our idea of America as a nation of immigrants came from. And in order to do so, they had to somehow define the existing social structure that had excluded or assimilated immigrants in the first place. Right? If you're if you're talking about Jews coming to America and dealing with discrimination, taking advantage of opportunities, you have to explain, well, what was the society they were coming into to begin with? And who were the elites with the power to decide who got assimilated and in what way? And so they took up the new term, which is an acronym, WASP which you may have heard of, stands for White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And they used this term WASP to refer to the old establishment, the existing sort of genteel upper and middle classes. And the irony of this development is that this term WASP was first coined quite accidentally by a sociologist named Digby Baltzell, who was himself a WASP from Philadelphia, where there is a long-standing genteel upper class of largely Quaker heritage centered in the so-called Philadelphia main line, north of the center of the city. And Baltzell, in contrast to the New York intellectuals, Baltzell really saw a lot of value in the old elite, and he wanted to keep them in the center of the American story. And he 
appreciated what he saw as the traditions of hard work, personal honor, respect for authority, and a sort of noblesse oblige, the sense that privileged people of the upper class should help and support the lower classes. And he saw all of these things to celebrate in the old elite of largely English extraction with roots in the colonial era. And he wrote two books sort of examining sociologically and also praising this old upper class. So in 1958, he published Philadelphia Gentlemen, The Making of a National Upper Class. And in 1964, Protestant Establishment, Aristocracy and Caste in America. And in this second book from 1964, among the tables that he included showing the different ethnic makeups of different towns and neighborhoods, he fitted in a column for sort of people of English extraction and Protestant religion, and he used the abbreviation WASP, White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which happened to make this neat little acronym WASP. And quite unexpectedly, the other sociologists coming from other backgrounds and other ideological commitments readily picked this up and started to use this term WASP. And Baltzell, interestingly, he he also made criticisms of the so-called WASP elite. His main criticism was that it was too closed and was not letting in new blood and outsiders, especially Jews. So in his view, the, the WASP elite was a good thing, but it needed to be more flexible and open to these newcomers. And the New York intellectuals did not really uh, share this exact view. They more kind of wanted to dissolve the power of these old elites, or were at least much more critical of it. And they took up this term WASP, from which it then filtered into the popular discourse. And it's now a commonly used term, which is, it's always a little bit tongue-in-cheek in some way. It's not really considered a technical term. It has two distinct sides to it, with a sort of mixture of positive and negative connotations. And the negative connotations include being entitled, privileged, and also sort of bland and uninteresting, right? Having a kind of dull, in America, we tend to say white bread culture, in contrast to the more colorful ethnic communities. On the positive side, there is also this sense of wasps as a special class with a strong civic duty and responsibility and a strong ethical code. And this sense of wasp, you might know, was invoked by the columnist Ross Douthat, or Douthat, however it's pronounced, in December 2018, when he was sort of eulogizing the late, the recently deceased President George H.W. Bush. And in doing so, he used him as sort of a symbol of the old upper class wasp caste. And it's true that Bush, you know, although today we associate the Bush family with Texas, in fact, their roots are in Connecticut. They're very much New England wasps. And Douthat argued that this older caste had a sort of sense of obligation, civic duty, noblesse oblige, in contrast to the more kind of mediocre, grasping, striving political elites of today, in his view. And this column was widely slammed. It caused a, a nice little eruption of controversy, uh, you know, a, fr- a little frothy eruption, as now happens regularly in the age of Twitter. But 
part of the upset stemmed clearly from the ambiguity of the use of this word wasp, where on the one hand, it can be taken to have this kind of class cultural meaning, like Digby Baltzell was first trying to put forward in a positive sense, that there are good things about a supposedly good upper class as long as it's not ethnically exclusive. But on the other hand, it necessarily has this Anglo-Saxon element and that sort of baggage of associations with racial pseudoscience, racial hierarchy, eugenics, and so on. So it really, you know, touched a nerve in more than one way because of these multiple levels of meaning that can be packed into WASP and Anglo-Saxon. And ironically, really, a lot of the confusion and upset can be traced back to Baltzell himself and his choice to connect habits of character and the mindset of a social class to an ethnic category, something that he may not have really intended to do very consciously, but that ended up happening, again, just because of the label he put on those demographic tables. And you can see, I think, some similar patterns in other controversies that have erupted over the past several years when this term Anglo-Saxon comes up. And it's due a lot to the sort of holdover of these outmoded senses and implications of the term Anglo-Saxon. For instance, several years ago when Mitt Romney was running for president, he visited Great Britain and reportedly he made an overture to uh, officials in the British government and referred to the, quote, shared Anglo-Saxon heritage between the U.S. and Britain, which one could take you know, to give the ultimate benefit of the doubt, one could take it as a kind of naive invocation of this old Whig history and this idea of Anglo-Saxon liberty carrying over from Britain to America. But obviously, there are centuries since then of racial and biological meaning also loaded into the term Anglo-Saxon, which to some degree were always there from the beginning, right? It was always referring back to some sort of supposed ancestral forebears, But it was in the 19th and 20th centuries that that aspect was really emphasized. And similarly, as you may have heard, you know, a sort of conservative, a caucus of conservative Republicans recently formed in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, which was looking to sort of preserve what what they saw or defend what they see as the time-tested core traditions of America, including, in their words, Anglo-Saxon institutions. And, you know, obviously there, even if you give the ultimate benefit of the doubt, it's unbelievably ignorant and naive not to see the obvious racial and ethnic implications of using Anglo-Saxon to designate what you consider to be more valuable or worth defending in America, in a country that even if you think that there is such a thing as an Anglo-Saxon group or ethnic group. They are clearly a minority in a very diverse country. So really, these sorts of flaps and controversies and conflicts over Anglo-Saxonism, the the myth of the Anglo-Saxons as a people or as a political tradition, are likely to continue. But as we can see from the very beginning, however you are deploying the notion of Anglo-Saxon, it has very little foundation in history. And really, it's a useful term only to refer to 
a limited set of people or constellation of loosely related groups in Dark Age Britain, a period about which we know very little and about which there are very few records. As an ethnic designation, it really is like all other ethnic designations in the sense that it was and continues to be mainly a political category. The notion of Anglo-Saxon was invented in the first place in order to try to cement a political alliance and a new polity as against the mix of possible enemies and threats in that specific place and time. And as one goes forward through time, all ancestral lines cross and mix, right? And all populations all around the world are all intermixed with one another. There is no perfectly isolated island, much less is Great Britain such a perfectly isolated island. There have been many migrations back and forth and all around the British Isles, and it would be a fool's errand to think that you could somehow trace out or mark out a an Anglo-Saxon ancestral group more than a thousand years after that political designation really became outmoded and irrelevant, in the same way that it's impossible to trace out institutions like trial by jury or parliaments or village self-government and claim that they have some sort of ethnic or racial root, when in fact they pop up in different forms and related forms in all kinds of societies. So sometimes people today will at, will argue that the very category, the very notion of Anglo-Saxon is just inherently racist and should be thrown away. And you know, I'm not going to take any position on that one way or another, except to say that if you look at the actual history, it's clear precisely when and where the term Anglo-Saxon is relevant and precisely when and where it is useful and clarifying to explain what was going on in a society. And that is in early medieval England, and that it was only used by people themselves for really less than 200 years in the 9th and 10th centuries. And as for today, it really has no application in today's world except as an ideological term. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you can support at any level, you'll be able to hear all of my patron-only lectures, including the last one about the myth of the Founding Fathers. And as I mentioned, I am now pretty close to the benchmark of 100 patrons on Patreon. There are also some others who have given their support to the podcast directly through PayPal. So if you can do that, that's very much appreciated and welcome too. And so as I near this totally arbitrary threshold, I'd like to do something special, something as a reward for patrons. I've thought about just making a a patron-only recording, discussing my own life, my own life story, sort of introducing myself a bit more. Uh, If you're interested in that or if you have any other suggestions, something you'd be curious about, something you'd like for me to do, maybe something embarrassing as long as it's legal, uh, please go sign up on Patreon. And also, finally, as I told patrons in a message, I have been co-producing another podcast with my friend Michael called God Save America about religious groups in America. And it's clear that it would be much more efficient for everyone if we merged God Save America into Historian Splaining as a series alongside other ongoing series that I've been producing. But it's 
gotten to be a lot to juggle. I think it's best to keep it to three. So if you have been listening and you know which series you like more than others among Myths of the Month, History of the United States and 100 Objects, Doorways in Time about archaeology, and God Save America, then please tell me what you think, which one you'd most like to see continued. And again, you can you can have an actual vote if you sign on as a patron and you'll have access to all my patron-only materials, including the next patron-only lecture will be one, another Doorways in Time about a major archaeological discovery. Thank you.